That sounds so much nicer, doesn't it? It just sounds so much, okay, it's sweeter, you know. But ours kind of has this, this kind of abrupt thing. And it's more than that. It's also because of the, the um, impression that we have of God, that he is some dictator up in the clouds, you know, giving orders, or some bully up in the sky who has these kind of odd commands. Or maybe, you know, if we ignore him, he's going to get dangerous and he's going to get cranky. And so that's kind of what the idea is. And there's some, so many um, people who think the existence of God is bad news, not good news. For them, it's bad news. There are people who really, really try uh, not to believe in God. The Kingsley Amos, who was a famous author back in the 60s and 70s, he said, I don't believe in God and I hate him. This is a guy who really tries not to believe in God, but, you know, and then he at the same time kind of acknowledges him because he hates him. Uh, about 10 years ago, there was a, a campaign of a group of atheists in, uh, in London, in England, that bought some advertisements that they put up on all the buses that said this, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Now, the people who put that up there are making a couple of assumptions. First of all, they're making the assumption that there's a lot of people out there worrying about whether there's a God or not. I kind of doubt that, if they even give them a second thought. Uh, they're probably not, it's probably not even on their radar. It's probably like, you know, like maybe 20 or 30 down the list of, of what they're thinking about. And the other assumption that is that if this God exists, he is out to stop you from enjoying life. And so they actually kind of think it's bad news instead of good news. And if this God doesn't exist, then we can all breathe a sigh of relief. Well, even believers kind of have to cope with that decision. Even people who believe in a God, if they just believe in a God, or Christians sometimes have to cope with the idea of what we view of God, how we, how we see him. And, uh, and so what we've done, we've, 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 gone this, we've called this great division. We, like I talked about last week, dualism or, or, uh, or the split-level kind of idea where we have this separation, and we've, we put God upstairs. We even sometimes call him the man upstairs. And he's away from us. And he's just, you know, he's, he's not um, inter quit interfering in our lives, you know, just kind of stay up there. And this country has a proud history. It's called deism. And this country has a proud history of deism, of uh, the idea, I think it was Benjamin Franklin who said that the creation was like a, a clock that God wound up and then set it aside and let it wind, let it run. Well, that's not really that all that new. It's called Epicureanism in the first century, where the gods did all their stuff, and then they kind of just left, and we just kind of let nature run its course. And so we kind of want to do that, separate it, and kind of split it up a little bit. But then we've got this serious problem of what do we do with Jesus? Uh, that Jesus came. That's why a lot of Christians, I think, struggle with the deity of Christ. That we've got this idea of what God is, but Jesus was here, and, uh, and he was... Um, you know, supposedly God incarnate, but it doesn't kind of work that way. And even today, I, I get the feeling sometimes that Christians, when they want to look at models, especially male models, they look at David and Samson instead of Jesus. And we have a trouble putting these two things together, and, and so we have this sort of serious, follow, serious problem. But if you talk to the first followers, they, they say it's a, a reverse they have no problem. They said, it, they said, take a really good look, hard look at Jesus, and then you'll understand what God's like. That's how they approached it. You look at Jesus to see what God's like. 
And if you look at the Old Testament prophecies, you will see this. In one prophecy, one paragraph in Isaiah, God is described as this, the God who sits in this, this throne above the world and the one who stretches the heavens like the curtains. And then in the same prophecy, he describes God as the, as the one who feeds the flock like a shepherd, who gathers lambs in his arms and leads the mother's sheep. Somehow these two things, the power and love and gentleness, blend together in the Old Testament and in the person of Jesus Christ. These two things kind of go together. And it's, this is what God is like. And this, to me, is where we find the Christian hope. This is where we find the hope, not in the gods who are out there, not in the God, the man upstairs, the hope. And this is not just a theological debate. This is not where God says, I, you need to analyze me to know me. He's saying, don't analyze me, trust me. That's what he's asking us to do, just to trust. That we are called to not acknowledge, just acknowledge, or just analyze. We are called to worship him. That's what God's called us to do. And it's not so much that we need to figure him out as he figures us out and what we need and what we want and hope for. And that's where we find hope. In, um, whenever I'm called to do a funeral or visiting someone in the hospital who's gravely ill or visit someone who's in grief because they just lost someone, one of the questions I get asked quite often is, where are they now? Where is my son now? Where is my wife now? Where's my mom right now? And they, we kind of assume that the New Testament is obsessed with this question as well. But it really isn't. We have very, very few information about that. The New Testament is more concerned about the ultimate climax. It's concerned about how things are going, where it's headed, the end, where it's going. And we do have a few verses where, where that treat that. Uh, so I think that we're, we'll get to that in a second. We'll retreat that. Like in John chapter 14, where Jesus tells um, the thief on the cross that um, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, Jesus was in paradise Friday night, but he wasn't there Sunday morning. He was out walking around somewhere because he was resurrected from the dead. Jesus also told his disciples that in my father's house there are lots of dwelling places. Mane is the word. And the Greek word mane means a temporary dwelling spot. It's where you go to rest to go on and then continue on your journey. You get rest and refreshed. refreshed. Paradise is like a blissful garden. Paul talks about being um, uh, with Christ. He's in, he's in prison, and he may have committed a felony, a, felony, a, a capital crime, and he doesn't know whether he's going to be executed or not, but he says, if I'm here, that's fine. To live is, good. To, to live is great, but to die is to gain because I will be with Christ, with him right now. But then just two chapters later, he talks about what this end looks like. And he talks about how the end is where the citizens of heaven are. And when he calls them citizens of heaven, he's not expecting all those Philippians to go back to Rome. 
Rome was way too crowded. And the Philippians knew exactly what he was talking about when he said we're citizens of Rome, citizens of heaven. He says, because you are here citizens of Rome in Philippi or Ephesus or Thessalonica or any of those places, you are having the rights and privileges of a Roman citizen. You are also representing Rome in these outposts. You're there to sort of colonize for Rome. Well, that's what Paul, that's the image Paul is painting here, that we are citizens of heaven, but we are living in the outpost. And the whole point is not to, to, to take us up and go to heaven. The point is that heaven and earth will come together, and we will have resurrection renewed bodies. That's what he's talking about. The Wisdom of Solomon is an apocryphal book. And it says in, Roman, in, in Wisdom 3.1, it says, My soul is in God's hands, and, I will never, and, and torture will never touch me. Now, the apocryphal book, Protestants usually don't recognize this as the inspired Bible. Catholics do, Eastern Orthodox do. But one thing that the apocryphal does is, is it tells us the Jewish mindset. It tells us what Jews were thinking and how they were living. And so in the Jewish mindset, it was, this is what it looked like, that I was in the hands of God. So right after we die, all I can tell you is that the Messiah will look after us. When we die in Messiah, it, the New Testament describes it as this blissful garden called paradise, or Jesus says it's like a, it's like a room in a mansion, but the point is that we are in God's hands. But we're still waiting. We're still waiting for the resurrection. That's where we're getting at. And this was, this was the idea of Jewish thought that all people would be raised from the dead, except the Sadducees. But for the, general, for the most part, the Jews thought everyone would be raised from the dead. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about Jesus as the first fruits. And he uses Psalms and he uses Isaiah to describe the resurrection, but he also says this is the first fruit. It's not all at once. And what he's talking about back there is he's using Genesis, that this first fruits is the down payment. This is the assurance of what will come. And Jesus' resurrection is the assurance of what will come. Resurrected bodies in a new heaven and a new earth. So, <clears throat> there's John 14, and if you're curious, Wisdom of Solomon says, but the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and therefore no torment shall touch them. So this is where we are. If you're, if you're thinking that the name of the game is for you to die and go to heaven, well then, death is your friend, and you're just waiting for it, and you want it to happen. And if that's the name of the game for you, you're a follower of Plato, not Jesus, Okay? I know this because this is where the New Testament is going. And I know this, that every funeral I attend, I feel that this is not right. Paul goes on to say, death is the enemy. It's the last enemy. Death is the intruder. And even when someone is very aged and, and ready to move on, that's all great. But it's still sad, isn't it? My mom was ready to move on, but it was still sad. And it was because the love and the life was no longer there. 
And so I know in my bones that this is not right. I know in my bones that there's something else, that death is not the way it's supposed to happen. And so Paul promises the resurrection. And I feel like if we are to really know this hope, if we are to really know this, know this hope, we have to experience it. It has to become part of us. For us, to, we want to live inside the hope, but we also want that hope to be in us. And we have to live inside of it. And we don't get inside of it by gritting our teeth and trying harder. We live inside of it. We experience it by prayer. And I think this is why Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer. He talked about the Sermon on the Mount. He gave, this is, the, this is like a recruitment for the kingdom of God. And then he gives them this prayer as if, pray this, and this is how it becomes part of you to pray it. Now, going back to this silly picture here. Uh, the Railhead is a restaurant that I worked at in high school. I, went, I spent three years in high school and then two summers in, in college working at this big restaurant. It was one of the big restaurants, premier restaurants in Dallas. Um, I worked in the kitchen, and uh, I, I think everybody ought to, live, ought to work at least a year in the service industry. Uh, you meet some of the strangest people, some of the weirdest people, and it just makes you more tolerant. <laughs> it's like, yeah, people are really different. People are really weird. And that's how it was at the railhead. And uh, uh, the owner was a guy named Marshall Gish. He was a nice guy. And the railhead, and like most kitchens, most restaurants, had a two-tier system. It was like Downton Abbey, downstairs and upstairs. And we were the downstairs. We were in the kitchen. I got promoted finally to head cook. Head cook, and that sounds really impressive. But all that meant is I stayed late till the kitchen closed and had to oversee that. And head cook does not mean I was a chef. We were cooks. We weren't chefs, okay? We chose prime rib, steaks, and seafood. It's very simple. We were, the down, we were the downstairs, and we were never allowed to go into the restaurant itself. Never allowed. We weren't dressed for it. We stunk. We smelled like grease. We just weren't allowed to go out there. The only time I ever go, went out to the restaurant was when this lady threw up in the bathroom, and I had to take the dishwasher one with me to go clean it up. That's the only time we weren't allowed to go there. Now, what if Marshall Gish says, I'm going to invite people to have dinner with me? And he comes to me and he says, Tommy, I want you and your girlfriend to come have dinner with me at my table in the restaurant and we'll enjoy it together. I go, great, great. So when I get there, I'm with, I'm with my girlfriend and, and, um, and just normal, I walk into the back door of the kitchen. And there's the kitchen, there's the Hobart, there's the, 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 the freezer, the, the walk-in refrigerator, the grill, the ovens, all that kind of stuff. And then I make my way out. Oh, there's the salad bar. Oh, Nice. And I see all these tables everywhere. And then I, I go to the bar, and there's people laughing, and there's fun. They're having music, live music and stuff. And then I go up, and I see Marshall Gish from the back, and he's waiting for me. And he turns around, and he sees me. He goes, so, all surprised. and said, well, I'm glad you're here. You didn't need to come in from the back. I'm glad you're here. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And I'll, I'll, I'll buy you a margarita or whatever. You know? <laughs> they serve this thing called the Velvet Hammer, which is really just an expensive milkshake. And... Uh, so we go there, and then we'd go and have dinner with them and just enjoy it. I can't tell you that because I feel like that's how we pray the Lord's Prayer. Maybe not when we recite it, but when our normal prayer life, we come in through the back door and then get to the front. 
And I think that's okay because being inside, that's the important thing. But we're not appreciating what the Lord's Prayer is doing to us. So what I want to do is kind of backwards go through here. Because usually we, prayer starts with help. Help. We, this is, even non-Christians say this. When they're under stress, anxiety, they just plead help. Help. Help me, God. I, help me get out of this. Deliver us from evil. Help me get out of this. Get me out of this place. And, and then you start worrying about it and say, well, maybe it's a test. Maybe he's leading me into temptation. And he's, he's testing me. And if I, if I blow it, you know, things are going to get worse. And I said, the, and the, only news that I'm, the only good news I'm interested in is helping me get out of this. And that's where we start. And that's okay. That's okay. But it's just one kind of the good news. It's just one part of the good news, one part of the hope. And then we move on and we say, oh, we, we forgive us. And even Christians have have problem with this, especially that second part where it says that we forgive others. Because we have trouble with it because, one, it's hard to do. And two, is like, how is this a prayer when I'm supposed to have some kind of moral responsibility here? But we say, but we need forgiveness. We feel guilty. And this is the, this is the second part of the good news. And we think, this is it. And unfortunately, this is where many Christians stop. Many Christians think, this is the good news. Forgiveness. That if I'm forgiven... I got my place in heaven, and I'm not going to hell, and that's good. That is the good news. Again, it's just part of the good news. It's not even in the first half of the prayer. It's an important part. It's hugely, enormously important. It's enormously important, but it's not the good news in and of itself. It's part of the good news. And then we move on, provide for our daily needs. Give us our daily bread. And Jesus did this. He, he did it all the time. He was always feeding people, and he, it, it, it was, he was embodying the good news. He was, he was teaching about the kingdom, and he says, this is what the kingdom is going to be like, where everyone will have what they need. We will have sufficiently what they need. And in the meantime, we are supplying that. We are giving you an, a taste of what the kingdom is. And he is feeding people. And not only is he feeding them, he's eating at the wrong tables with the wrong people. And he's including all sorts of people, even people who work in kitchens at restaurants. He's including all those people. And it's this symbol, this symbol, this visual aid of what the kingdom has looked like. And this, too, is important. But again, it's just part of the good news. And then he goes on. Then we go on and say, I'm, I'm in the restaurant and I'm going through and I'm seeing the bar and I'm seeing the kitchen, the tables and stuff. And then I come to Marshall and I start looking around at all this stuff that's going around and I realize my vision just got bigger. I just realized that this is going way beyond what I thought it was, way beyond what I needed. And other people will say, ah, yeah, well, now it's a trap. It's not about bread. It's not about freedom. It's really about religion, isn't it? The kingdom. But this is the good news. This is the good news. It stresses the whole, the whole message. And establishing his kingdom was costly, incredibly costly. Where God became incarnate, and let evil do its worst. It was costly. And he notice he says, may your kingdom come to earth as it already is in heaven. It's not may your will be done 
in heaven as it already is in heaven. It's may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we are to live that future now, knowing that the future is coming. And then it says, honor and glory to your name. And we finally realize that the good news is about God. It's not about us. It's about God. He says, hallowed be your name. That means we, we glorify him. We honor him. It is God-centered. The prayer is God-centered, not us-centered. We see this. When we talk about the hallowed halls of some place, we mean we show it respect. We show it honor. And we recognize that hallowed be thy name, thy glory of his name, because of who he is. It reveals his character, that he is the Lord of all the angels, that he is utterly faithful. He is utterly loving. He is utterly determined to fulfill his promises. Glory be his name. And that's why we praise. And we learn when we worship. We learn how to be a Christian when we worship. And it finally dawns on us, this is what it's all about. It is God-centered. And so now we are ready to go to the starting point. We now are ready to call him our Heavenly Father. This is why coming in the back door is not terrible, but it's a mistake. We go through the front door, and we're now ready to say, this is my heavenly father. He is not the dangerous bully that I thought he was. He is not the dangerous dictator I thought he was. He is a father. And the Jewish nation, they, little by little, they, they called God father, but when Jesus came... He totally changed it all. He said, fatherhood is ready for everyone. My fatherhood is ready for everyone. He is hallowed. And when we say hallowed his name, we know now that he is not that thundering, bullying voice in the sky who sends us cowering in the corners. He is a heavenly father. And that is the good news. And that's where our hope is. And that's why I'm convinced that we pray this prayer, not just to recite it, but we pray it until it becomes part of us. Our Father, who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. But it starts with Heavenly Father, that is the good news. Every bit, every bit of the Lord's Prayer needs all the other bits. We can't pull one out and say, this is the good news. We pull the Lord's Prayer out and say, this is the good news. It's centered on God, our Heavenly Father, and it pivots on Jesus Christ. This is where hope is found. A century ago, uh, the, the Christian teachers and preachers, especially in Europe, they came up with this idea that this is going to, they, they, they summarized the gospel message in this, the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man. And that was a slogan. 
But that slogan then became really quickly, really hollow, real fast, because the people who were saying this, fatherhood of God, brotherhood of man, the people who were saying this suddenly were all excited about fighting in the First World War. Christian nations against Christian nations. It just regained hollow. They had reduced the good news to a slogan, to an ideal, and maybe hopefully we can live up to it. They reduced Christianity. What Jesus' message was is just an ideal, ideal with hopes that we can live up to it, that we can match it. And they forgot that Jesus is the pivot point of history. Everything revolves around that. The world is different after the crucifixion and the resurrection. So to sum up the good news, our hope, three parts that I want to mention. The one true God is the creator of the world. This is truly good news. We're not just some alien planet floating around here. This is not a theological point we need to debate or argue. This is something that's true. This is my father's world. Every breathtaking sunset, every stunning starlight, every little bug and perfect flower and the way the atoms are held together are all because this is my father's world. And there's a lot of people who want to try to explain that away, that it's all from just this natural causes of science. And I, to me, the explanations give me more awe and wonder personally. But a lot of people try to explain it away that God didn't have anything to do with it. There's no living creature. There's no living life that has anything to do with this. That's fine. For the rest of us, I would say my advice to you, enjoy the view. This is my Father's world. Enjoy the view. We don't need to explain it away. Jesus, when he came, he didn't try to explain pain and sorrow. He just found himself in the middle of it. He didn't try to explain away illness and death. He just offered new life. He didn't try to explain away evil. He just took it all on himself and he drained it of its power by bringing new life, by rising from the dead. That's how he defeated evil, that it was overcome by something stronger. So the true God is the creator of the world. The second thing is the good news will happen. The same God who made the world will restore it and will renew it. It will happen. The Old Testament talks about the wolf lying down with the lamb, the leopard with the kid, the calf with the lion and the fatling, and the child with it in the middle of it all. And how is it going to do this? And why is it going to do this? Because the Bible says that the, the, the world will be flooded with the knowledge of the love of God. That's how it will happen. The creation will be flooded with the knowledge of God. That's when things change. Paul says twice, at least that I know of, I can remember, one in 1 Corinthians and one, and one in Colossians, he says, Christ is all and in all. In other words, he will pour himself and he will be all and in all. Nothing will be lost. Everything you do out of love will somehow have eternal value. I don't know how that works, but everything you do out of love for Jesus will have eternal value and nothing will be lost. 
And the last thing is that God who made the world is the God of the infinite, exuberant, lavish, and generous love. I ran out of adjectives. That this same God created out of love, not out of necessity. You say, well, how can this perfect God create this imperfect world? And the only logical explanation is that he did it out of love. He did it out of love, this generous love. And he delights in the creation. He delights in the creation. He delights in the bugs and the atoms and the flowers. And especially he delights in the creature's who are his image bearers. So much so, he's given us a lot of responsibility. The God who made the world is the God of infinite, exuberant, lavish, and generous love. We're going to reenact that this morning. We do this twice a month by communion. It's one thing to say the gospel and I always say, I'm glad we celebrate communion because even if I mess up with the sermon, the communion does, it, does the message. And so we're not just going to say it, we're going to actually reenact it and do it. That Jesus gave himself for us. And when, he took, when he, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, his whole ministry, he was constantly inclusive. He was constantly including everybody. I mean, you try to find an example in the Gospels where Jesus purposely excluded somebody. Now, he was honest about the relationships with him and the relationship with others, but he never excluded anyone. There was never a creating this in-group and out-group. It was all that was welcome. And yet, the common image of all our, I forgot how many denominations we have these days. You know, something like 100,000 different groups around the world. And some of these groups even use communion to separate, to exclude and I heard a Catholic monk say one time, he says, we say communion, and we always mutter the prayer, I am not worthy. But when it comes to communion, evidently only Catholics are worthy. And I'm not just picking on the Catholics. I mean, there are other groups that do this too. So we open the table that Jesus gave and open with all the wrong people at the wrong table, he was always accused of doing that. He was accused of not washing his hands and not doing this. And, but, the, but because the table, it reflected the, the social order of things. Well, guess what? Our table reflects a new order of things. It reflects a new life that Jesus offers. And everyone is invited to take it. So we're going to take communion this morning. I'm going to ask... If, uh, some, uh, some helpers will come and help me pass out the elements.